If you're one of Christ's sheep today, you have a proclivity to follow after Him. And if you have no desire to follow after the things of God, you're either lost or you're grossly out of fellowship with God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Revelation, and this week we opened up chapter 14, which talks about an army of 144,000 men that will be accompanying the Lord Jesus Christ at His second coming. As we pick up today, Pastor Brogy begins reading from verse 3, which talks about these individuals rejoicing as they learn a new song from a heavenly choir, all of them proclaiming joy over the people who have come to genuine saving faith. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. He only identifies the choir here with the pronoun they. But the rest of the revelation, if you remember chapters 4 and 5, it's the redeemed church in heaven and this special class of angels called the four living creatures who are praising angels. And so while the heavenly choir sings this new song, 144,000 men there on the temple mount with Jesus on Mount Zion are learning a new song. And the text says that no one could learn the song except these who had been purchased from the earth. In other words, they were not earth dwellers like we've seen all the way through Revelation. These people who are this life only, who could care less about God. These are citizens of heaven. These are the redeemed people of God. And if only this army of evangelists can hear this song, there's an implication here that there are some present who cannot hear this song. Now remember, The Lord is on Mount Zion with these people. Here's the Mount of Olives that he comes back on. He splits it in two. It opens up the eastern gate. He walks up on the Temple Mount. He's got 144,000 evangelists who've been preaching the gospel with him for seven years. This Kidron Valley that lies between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount is also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or the Valley of Decision. It's the same place. Now, if you go there today, here's a picture of it. Uh, between, uh, if you're on top of the Mount of Olives, and Mount Zion is where that gold dome is, that Muslim pagan structure of sorts, between the two is one of the largest graveyards in the world. And there are all these Jewish men and women who want to be buried there. Now, some time ago, my wife and I were with our grandchildren there in Atlanta, and we took them to visit their, our granddaughter's grave, Jane. And, and as we sat there on the ground, one of them said, Now, Granddaddy, where is Jane's head? Is it here where my feet is, or is it up here by the stone? I said, It's by the headstone. They wanted to know where her head was. I said, That's why we call it a headstone. So she's buried with her head there. Well, if you're on the Mount of Olives, and you look at this mass of graves... And if somehow you could take the lid off, now this is just a grave marker. They're buried six feet under. The head, if they sat up, would be facing that temple mount. Every Jew on that mountain is buried in such a way that if he were to sit up on that grave, he'd be looking straight at the temple mount. 
Why is that? Because they believe the prophecies of Scripture. They believe that that's where the Messiah is going to come because that's what God reveals in His Word. And they want to see the Messiah there standing on Mount Zion. Now remember, this is the Valley of Jehoshaphat called the Valley of Decision. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. Listen to what God says in Joel 3. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. So remember, unless these days have been cut short, this, these days of horrible tribulation, Jesus said no one would survive. So God puts an end to it. And there are people who are alive when Jesus comes, some who are living, born-again believers, tribulation saints, and other unbelievers. And God gathers them all, and He brings them into the valley of Jehoshaphat, in what today we also call the Kidron Valley. And God says in Matthew 25 that He will judge them. He'll judge the nations on the basis of the way they treated Jerusalem. He said, I was in prison, you fed me. I was hungry, you, 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 know, you cared for me, and so forth. I was naked, you clothed me. Whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, referring to the Jewish people. Now, we apply it broadly today, but remember the context. He's talking about how the nations of the world are going to treat Israel. And all the nations of the world are going to come against Israel on that day. The only nations that won't are those who have come to believe that Jesus is the Savior. And God will gather them away. Some will be left. The rest will be taken away in judgment. That's what the text says. It has nothing to do with the raptures, how Lindsay misinterpreted it some years ago. And those Jewish people are going to watch it all. Every Jewish believer who acknowledged in that day, many of them, these graves go back centuries. Some were looking forward to the Messiah. They didn't know his name would be Yeshua, but they believed God would send the Messiah, these Old Testament saints. Many will come to believe in Jesus, and they'll be part of those who are executed, and there'll be even more graves. But they will look at the Messiah there on top of the Temple Mount, and they're going to sing a new song. And they alone are qualified to sing this new song. Why? Because of the experience they had. Now, look, before I was saved, my heart was not filled with godly songs, but with the world's songs. I couldn't sing a godly song and really understand amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me because I hadn't been saved. But when God saved me, I understood what that song meant. And now I can sing about God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's sustaining grace and His blessings and His provisions. Well, these men are singing a new song that is unique to them because of the role that they played. And someday, you will sing a new, new song with these people. Look, the Scripture says, sing unto the Lord a new song. You notice how Matt often introduces us to new songs? Why does he do that? Well, among other things, the oldie goldies, while they may be great, God commands us to learn new songs. Nothing wrong with the old songs. They sang the Psalms over and over and over again in the Bible in their songbook. But there's also new songs, fresh songs that need to come from the heart. And someday I'll be able to sing a new, new song in my glorified body because now I see dimly. 
That day I'll say very clearly face to face. Finally, there's beyond God's rescued army and God's rejoicing army, I want you to notice God's redeemed army. God's redeemed army, and two characteristics are underscored here. First, the lifestyle of God's redeemed army is pure. We read here in verse 4, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves Chase. Now, the word chase here is the Greek word parthenos. It's often translated virgins. And in some of your English Bibles, it says they have kept themselves virgins. Now, what does that mean? Well, the term virgin in the Bible can refer to a literal, actual virgin, like Christ would be born of a virgin. Um, that was a miracle birth. It was a virgin conception. Uh, or it can refer sometimes to a spiritual virgin, or it can refer to both. Now, I need to say parenthetically that my dear Roman Catholic friends love to take Revelation 14.4, among other verses that they use, in order to advocate that to be in a preferred state of spirituality, you need to be a virgin in order to serve as a priest, a bishop, or a cardinal. Of course, history reveals that many of these even popes sired children, not to mention as the scandal continues to grow, many even red hats have raped little girls and boys. Now, we're going to study this church in the 17th chapter, and it's going to be chilling for some of you. But here these people are described as undefiled by women. Now, please understand God is not down in intimacy in the marriage relationship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, I wish all men were as I. He was single. Why? Because a single person can give undistracted devotion to the work of the Lord. But God has not gifted most people in that way. He's called most people to be married. And so the assumption is, is that a man will leave his father and mother and the two shall become one. In fact, in describing intimacy, God doesn't describe that virginity as some greater form of purity in which to serve God in. For Paul writes, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, that you might devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So God did not create celibacy, so to speak, in order to give you a greater purity to serve God with. In fact, it has the potential for greater immorality once you're married if you deprive one another of a basic function God has written into your body. But please understand, God is not against marriage. And I suspect when we get to heaven, a lot of these 144,000 will have been married and have children. But understand, there's a contrast being made, and the contrast will become so plain when we come to the 17th chapter, because God is going to contrast the true church of God with the false church called the harlot of Babylon in Revelation 17, the false one world religion. And God often in Scripture compares spiritual unfaithfulness to adultery, just as He often in Scripture compares spiritual purity 
to a virgin. And so Paul is speaking of the virgin bride of Christ, to use his terminology. For instance, to use it as unfaithfulness, James will write, you adulteress. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, if you think that sin in this age, as bad as it is getting, is easy to get a hold of. If someone today wants to be immoral, it's a lot easier today to be immoral than it was 40 years ago. But I want to tell you, when the church is removed and the restraining influence of the Spirit is gone, it will be 10,000 times, 10,000 times easier to be immoral, to participate in all kinds of wickedness. The point of these 144,000 is not that they've been kept from marriage, but spiritually speaking, they are virgins, and spiritually speaking, they have been faithful to the Lord. How do I know that? Just read the rest of the verse. Let's keep reading. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. How so? These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These men are mocked by their loyalty to the Lamb. Furthermore, verse 4 says, these have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, Moses wrote of a number of festivals that the Jewish people were to participate in that they continue to participate in. And one is called the Feast of First Fruits. It's not by accident that Jesus literally died on Passover and he was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. At First Fruits, the people in anticipation and gratitude of the harvest that would come would bring a single stalk of grain and then they would bring a handful of grain and it pictured the harvest that was going to come. Jesus was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. He was the single stalk. But the Bible also unfolds in Matthew, unique there because it's written to Jewish people. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So in keeping with that theme of first fruits, God describes these 144,000 like first fruits. Why? Because after the church has gone, they're the first ones saved, and they are a picture of a harvest of millions of people that come to faith during this time. Remember, John said, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count. Doesn't even try to count them. He just likens them to the sand of the seashore. These men are like first fruits. Now, in addition, not only is their lifestyle pure, the lifestyle of God's redeemed army is blameless. They are blameless. Notice how verse 5 begins. And no lie was found in their mouth. Some of your translations say no guile, no deceit, no falsehood. The Greek word is dolos. It's the word used outside of the Bible to describe a decoy. You know what a decoy is. We put some plastic ducks out in the marsh one day to float them out there to bring the real ducks in. They're fakes. They're phonies. A hypocrite is a decoy. These men are the real deal. They're not fakes. They didn't preach lies. No lie was found in their mouth. They were blameless, not sinless, 
They still have a fallen sinful nature, but blameless. Paul can describe himself in Philippians not as sinless, but as blameless. In other words, there was no glaring fault, no big blemishes. These men knew the truth. They believed the truth. They lived the truth. They preached the truth. Now, how are we going to apply this passage today? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, I want to ask by way of three questions. First, are you standing in victory? Are you standing in victory? Now, when Jesus comes back and returns to the earth and stands on Mount Zion, he is standing there with 144,000. In the Greek New Testament, as seen in our English Bibles, standing is shared both by the Lord Jesus and by these 144,000. And they are victorious with our Savior. They are standing in victory. And our being able to stand in victory has been the subject of many hymns throughout the age of the church. In the 1800s, Dudley Ting would preach at the YMCA, the Young Men's Christians Association. Back then, it was a real Christian organization. And on one day, he preached to over 5,000 men. And on that morning meeting, over 1,000 young men gave their lives to Christ. After the morning meeting, being a farmer, he went back to his farm, and as they were shelling corn, he got a little too close to the machinery, and his coat got caught in it, and it took his arm off. And as he lay on the bed, bleeding out, dying, his father reminded him that there would be thousands there in that evening to listen to him preach. Do you want me to tell them anything? He said, tell them to stand up for Jesus Christ. And so that evening, thousands came expecting him to preach. And it was announced that he had died that afternoon. But he said his last words were to you, stand up for Jesus Christ. George Duffield was present in that congregation. And he heard the evangelist's last words. And he went home that night and wrote this hymn that we often sing. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Ye soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished. And Christ is Lord indeed. This passage represents God's people in victory. And God wants you and I to walk in victory. And so I'm just asking you this morning, are you standing in victory? Number two, do you understand that you are secure in Christ? Revelation 14 here introduces us to the amazing truth of these servants who have been sealed of God. Here they are with the Lamb, sealed and forever secure with Him. You say, well, if I had a seal like that, it would be wonderful. Well, you do in one sense, as I've already underscored. Ephesians, we read it this morning. The Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Very similar terminology is used by Paul when he writes to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, The Spirit is the one who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. You say, well, is it possible to break that seal, to lose the Spirit? Paul will say in Ephesians 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When the Spirit comes in you, He is sealed there, marking you, owning you for the time when Jesus comes back. 
In John, it should say the sixth chapter, the 37th verse, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is the will of the Father who sent you, Lord Jesus? This is the will of him who sent me, that of all, everyone, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Understand, there is no leakage at all between those who believe and those who are raised up on the last day. In John 10, Jesus will say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you're one of Christ's sheep today, you have a proclivity to follow after him. And if you have no desire to follow after the things of God, you're either lost or you're grossly out of fellowship with God. And I give, we don't earn it, I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Listen, you don't hold on to God. God holds on to you by His sovereign, unending, eternal grace. And here are these 144,000 saved and secure. And when you get sealed with God, you cannot break that seal. You know, people say, well, I was saved and I got saved again. What you're telling me is you were born again, and then you were unborn again, and then you were born again again. And then, well, I got lost the second time, so, but I got saved again. I'm born again, again, again. You're only saved once. Now, I meet people all the time. They say, well, I got saved back yonder. Well, I doubt it because you told me tonight you were 50% sure and that God should let you into heaven because you're a good person. If you were saved way back yonder, you never would have said that. You only get saved once, just as there's only one physical birthday, there's just one spiritual birthday. Not a single one is lost. It's not 143,999. And every single one that the Father gives the Son will be secured. Of this grace, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What does that mean? It means Christ died for all. He didn't die just for the elect. He didn't die for some particular group. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, world means world. He has appeared. He brings salvation to all men. But that doesn't mean all are saved. You have to receive this grace. And so the next verse says, instructing us. The salvation is available to all men, but it only instructs us who have believed. And what does it teach us? If I've had a real encounter with grace, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, that's the rapture and the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior. That's what I'm looking for today. I'm looking for Christ. I'm not looking for any Christ who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. That's why God saved you. You don't say, I'm saved and on my way to heaven. I can live like the devil. That's the mark of a lost man. Third and finally, do you have a song in your heart? Jesus taught that your words will either condemn you or they will justify you. He said, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. He said, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Listen, if you do not have a song of praise in your heart today, it means just one of two things. You either have never been saved so you can't understand these songs where you own them.
or it means you are a million miles out of fellowship with God. If you come here and you just barely mouth the words because you know you're supposed to do it to be spiritual, you're a million miles out of fellowship with God or you have never met Him at all. Music is important. It's very telling of the kind of person that you are. I've been inviting you to bring your children to the children's choirs. You ought to have them here. My wife got a sweet little note from our Grace Anna, and she was teaching children's choirs here in Texas last week, and some men, some lady, mom wrote her back and said, you know, I was listening outside of my daughter's room, and I heard my little five-year-old singing that hymn they learned. It's very telling of the kind of person you are. And if you are saved, you're headed for a future of music. <laughs> and if you don't like music, you got a problem. Now, you need to be born again, some of you. You may be religious. You may have been baptized. You may have joined the church. You may have been confirmed. But unless you are born again, unless you are made a new creature, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And you can be saved today because Jesus paid it in full. Let's bow in prayer. Maybe you're here and you want to be saved. My friend, you must acknowledge that you are a sinner. If you think you're good enough to go to heaven, you'll die and go straight to hell thinking that way. You have to change your mind that your sin is wrong and offensive and God needs to forgive it and change it, but He can only forgive it and change it through the blood of Christ. The gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But you must come and embrace that gospel by believing what God promised, that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Some of us are here and we're doubtful where we stand with God. No need to be doubtful. You can seal the decision today and forever if you will come by faith, knowing God cannot lie that if you will call upon the name of Jesus, God would save you. Would you say today, Lord Jesus, save me? Now, some of us have already been redeemed, but in these last days, We've let the entertainments of the world crowd the Lord Jesus out of our hearts. And there's really not a song in our hearts. That's a mark of being filled with the Spirit, the Bible says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And that's just not true. And you're old Mr. or Mrs. Stoneface when we gather. You don't even open your mouth. I don't care how bad your voice is. Belt it out in obedience. But the problem for some of us is a heart issue. And God says to those who've been saved that when we're out of fellowship and we confess our sins, He is both faithful time and time again, and He's acting totally righteously because Jesus died for it to forgive you and to cleanse you. Would you bring that sin, that point of rebellion under the blood of Christ today? Now, Father, we exist to glorify you, to exalt your Son, to edify one another, and to evangelize those who are lost. May that be true of us in this brand new week that you've given us. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. 
To listen again to today's message entitled, God's Army with the Lamb, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV37. Search the Scriptures is made possible through your prayers and financial support. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll begin a look at three angelic preachers. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.